and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in lovely Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a good morning in Washington, D.C., or just outside of Washington, D.C., to Dr. Yunjun Park, who's joining us again. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Dr. Park, she's a co-founder and coordinator of the Chinese in Africa, Africans in China Research Network. Uh, part of what they do is a website that they produce in partnership with the Social Science Research Council uh, in Brooklyn. It's called the China Africa Knowledge Project. Fantastic website over at china-africa.ssrc.org. Uh, but Dr. Park, and the reason why we've invited her back on the show today Today is because she's one of the leading experts in the world on Chinese migration. In fact, she did her PhD back at, uh, I think you said Witts many years ago. Was that correct? That's right. Okay. So you did your, 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 your PhD at, way back on Chinese migration. And so we are just thrilled to have you back on the show again. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, Howard French came out recently with a very talked about book uh, referring to Africa as China's second continent. Now, in Howard's defense, he says he didn't actually write the title. It was the publisher who wrote the title. But in the book, he, he, it was a very provocative book in many respects because it really talked about this demographic shift that's been going on in Africa with the presence of – now, I'm going to throw these numbers out, and this is really what I want you to help me kind of figure out here – We've heard numbers as dramatic as 2 million that Howard French included in this book, if I'm correct. Uh, we've heard other numbers of 1 million Chinese immigrants. Um, people have said that it's 600,000, 500,000. The reason why there's so much dispute over this is because nobody actually knows, and there's no real way to calculate. What does your scholarship on the topic of Chinese migration to and within Africa tell you about just how many Chinese are actually there? Um, the, the number that I've used um, in, in the past has been about a million, um, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if that number has doubled in the past. The only um, actual statistics that um, I'm familiar with um, were actually collected by Professor Barry Saltman um, out of Hong Kong, and I've used his stats um, and, and added some of my own. but. That was already in 2009, 2010, um, and that was just under a million. But uh, how total. can anybody possibly come up with a number? There's no what, – what, how could you source that? I mean, I, I just – I don't even know where you could start to figure that out because the mig migratory patterns are so informal. Well, I think that's one of the big problems. Um, the statistics, and, and I believe Barry Saltman continues to keep uh, a track of, of some of these things. Um, as I said, he's probably one of the only ones, and he has the benefit of some um, research assistance. But Ohio University, I think, um, maintains a database of overseas Chinese, and then on top of that, they're counting on um, government um, reports. Um, and as you know, in Africa, most of these are quite um, unreliable um, if they keep numbers at all. So it is. It's a moving target. And I think, you know, the best we can do is, is kind of have a ballpark figure that we're working with. But the other thing that I want to mention, which I think is really, really important whenever we talk about Chinese migration, is that probably half of that number are not migrants technically. They're they're contract workers. They're in Africa for two, one, two, maybe three years on a project, probably on construction or in mining. 
and um, they're, they're going to have to return. They have a round-trip ticket that is paid for, they're there to do the work, and they need to leave when they're done. Um, and, and this is a very fluid population that we're talking about. So, um, on that point, um, figure are our workers. Yeah. On, on that point, I wonder if you can give us a breakdown of who Chinese migrants to Africa actually actually is. Like who you know what what are the what are the main the main kind of constituencies that make up this group of migrants? Okay. So as I said, uh, nearly half are are workers, and and they're going to work on. Um, Chinese company-run projects. Now, these might be state-owned um, agencies or they might be private Chinese companies that have been given contracts to do um, a road construction project or to um, work in uh, mining or um, oil extraction for a Chinese company. Um, in West Africa, a lot of uh, Ghanaian and Nigerian companies, from what I've read, are also contracting Chinese workers to come and work um, on their projects. So this isn't now Chinese companies, but um, local African companies that are hiring and um, bringing over Chinese labor. Um, I imagine because they think they're either cheaper or more efficient or some combination of, of, of the two. Um, amongst the other migrants, you have obviously um, the diplomatic community and journalists and um, people who work for Chinese companies um, at a more professional level. And most of these people also circulate in and out. Most of them would be on two, three, four-year contracts and, and leave again. Um, and then the, the last growing number of, of Chinese migrants are these independent migrants, are people who are deciding that you know, they're going to try their luck and, and see if they can make a go of things in, in Africa. And so they will, in most cases, borrow money um, and, uh, from family, from friends, and um, money that they would need to cover their passage, their flights, um, and um, maybe start up a small business in the African country that they're going in and oftentimes, you know, taking two to three years to pay off that, that, that debt. Um, these are the kinds of independent migrants that we see in almost every single African country. I'm sure Howard describes many of them who are entrepreneurial, but I would put that in quotation marks. These weren't people who own their own businesses in China. They're going over and starting their own businesses because they don't have the language skills to apply for a regular job. Oftentimes they don't have the um, proper visa to do those kinds of things. And so they will save up or, or borrow money and start small businesses. You, you know, when you look at one million, two million, you know, in the broader context of a continent that's 900 million people, it's not that significant. But what ends up happening is that there are clusters, and particularly around urban areas. Johannesburg is one. Uh, we've talked about, you know, in, in in Ghana, in Accra, there's there's growing Chinese populations. Nairobi is another one. And so the the impact of the Chinese population is is disproportionate depending on the area that it's in. And I'm kind of I'd like to get your take on this in terms of the the ethnic relationship between the Chinese and the various other ethnic groups that are there, and the perception that the Chinese now are a permanent fixture. They're not going back. 
Uh, I asked one of my employees when I was working in Kinshasa, I said, what are you going to do when the Chinese leave? Because, you know, a lot of perceptions that, have, that Africans have is the foreigners at some point always leave. And he looked at me kind of in a stunned way and he said, you know, Mr. Eric, they're not leaving. They're here. They're too poor to go back. And I guess that, that means then that they are going to assimilate. They're going to have children. If normal human behavior kind of, you know, does what it does, there's going to be intermarriage and there's going to be all these other things that start to happen. Tell me about that, what your perception is of that. So I would agree with you. I don't think in terms of the numbers that the, the Chinese presence is really all that huge, except in places like Johannesburg, where you have a disproportionate um, number. And, and to be clear, from based on my research, um, which is really focused on Southern Africa, um, a large proportion of that one to two million figure that's tossed around is actually in South Africa and it's in Johannesburg. But even with those numbers, those higher numbers, and, and we're talking maybe one or two percent of the population in Joburg, um, much, much lower in, in every other major city. Um, I think the fact that it's significant is, is not so much the numbers, but the newness of this Chinese presence. In most African countries, as you guys know, the only foreigners they've ever seen are white people, um, with with the possible exception of you know um, people from the Indian subcontinent in East Africa and a handful of Lebanese in West Africa. Um, there haven't been a lot of non-black Africans running around Africa, unless you're white, and and you know and and there's a long history of colonial domination. The Chinese don't fit all of those old categories. And so um, there, there's the, the lack of history in most African countries, the racial and ethnic and linguistic difference um, that I think makes the Chinese stick out. Um, so I think that is really significant. Okay, so Kobus, um, taking, taking into account what Yoon has just said, that, and I, and I agree here, that you know, the influence is spread very, very thin across the continent. And then we, we hear these narratives of, again, China's second continent. That was Howard French's subtitle in his book. Uh, you know, this the xenophobic kind of strains that are, that are very prominent in, in some parts of Africa, Uganda, certainly in South Africa as well. Um, you know, is that being overblown and manipulated, in your opinion, particularly from a South African perspective? I, I think it's absolutely overblown. I think there are periodic outbursts of, of, of anti-Chinese sentiment, but particularly in South Africa, where there is a history of, of some small Chinese presence, I found in my um, research on African perceptions, um, and I did some survey research that um, I haven't managed to write up and publish yet, but um, in, in Zimbabwe and Lesotho, um, and a little bit in Namibia as well, South Africa actually had the most um, kind of mixed or ambivalent feelings about Chinese. And I have argued in, in an academic paper that a lot of this has to do with um, history and, and memories of Chinese. The Chinese aren't, are clearly other, in quotation marks, or foreign, um, but they're not an evil or dangerous other. They're, they're, they're just, you know, a, a foreign presence. Um, in Lesotho, I found a huge difference because Lesotho is a country of out-migrants. Lesotho is not used to having anyone who's not 
a Basutu in country unless you're a development worker. Um, and, and oftentimes development workers or, or, or somebody who's, um, you know, come across the border from South Africa to do business. Um, so all of the sudden for Maseru to be dealing with a, a huge Chinese influx, um, and again, by huge, you're talking, you know, maybe one, two percent of the population. Um, but suddenly these Chinese are coming in and they're um, buying up the shops next to you and undercutting your prices and they're um, competing for business, that's when it becomes problematic. That's when you have local populations start questioning, you know, who are these people? How are they getting in? Why are they allowed to sell um, fat cakes, you know, fried dough and, and mealies on the street corners when, you know, we can't even get jobs? It's it's when it becomes a matter of competition and livelihood or the perception of competition that you start seeing uh, a rise in anti-Chinese sentiment. And I would argue that... I think, uh, yeah, I, I, think I think in South Africa, what, what it also frequently has to do with is this, it has to do with the politics of whiteness in South Africa to a certain extent. I think, you know, kind of white people frequently face a lot of pressure of their own of being not really supposed to be here. Um, and I think frequently kind of anti-Chinese sentiment is, is, is used as a way of legitimizing white people's presence. And I think you see that a lot um, in, you know, kind of in discourses around poaching um, and this kind of activism that sometimes some somewhat hysterical you know, kind of activism around rhino poaching um, in South Africa, where which has become this kind of site where white people can prove they're really South African. Um, you know, kind of by by kind of creating this kind of other. And I, I think recently, you know, I think two years ago, no, the, the magazine Noseweek in South Africa published this very kind of Chinese baiting article, which did a very similar kind of thing. You know, kind of where, you know, a, a traditionally kind of white uh, white publication like Noseweek, you know, kind of used, to my mind, used it as this kind of chance to kind of legitimate themselves within South Africa by, you know, kind of by by, by raising this kind of alarm about mm. these other foreigners coming. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about this question of assimilation. And this is one that I always find so interesting coming from whites in, in who talk about Africa, either expatriate whites in Africa, uh, native-born whites, or whites in Europe or, or in the U.S. And one of the comments they'll say about the Chinese is that well, you know, the Chinese will never assimilate, uh, you know, and with the implication that whites have assimilated. And in some parts of Africa, certainly in, in former, you know, in Zimbabwe before whites were expelled, there was quite a bit of, of, of assimilation. South Africa is another example in some areas that there are. But at the same time, South Africa is an extraordinarily segregated country today. Um, you know, not living up to Mandela's dream of integration. And yet the whites that are there today oftentimes live in gated communities with high walls. And the Chinese themselves, many of which are the poor migrants you've talked about, not necessarily the expats who are working on the international projects, live in the townships. They live in the villages. They're living next to the people. And I found that the irony was that I found in my own experience in the Congo, um, I saw much higher levels of assimilation. And then Solange Chadelach, uh, who's done a lot of research on Chinese communities in Zambia is a good friend. And she's talked to me about intermarriage. And she's talked about the second generation of Sino-Zambian children that are starting to, to raise and, and to come up. And I guess I'm just, I've seen a disconnect between a lot of white perceptions 
uh, of what a word assimilation is. And at the same time, on the ground, a lot of Chinese assimilation most, mostly do out of economic necessity more than anything else. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I think, first of all, whenever we talk about China-Africa, we need to talk about the fact that it's one country and a continent. Yes, that's a fair point. Different countries, and the realities on the ground really vary from country to country and even within countries, you know, provinces, regions, it really, really makes a huge difference. Um, when I did some research in Namibia back in 2010, um, 2009 and 2010, um, it was really interesting because the, there we got the same kinds of responses that you just mentioned. That um, you know, on the one hand, you had a Namibian trader who lived up in the north and was concerned about the sudden kind of influx of Chinese uh, traders and retail um, operators who were kind of bringing in more competition. But I talked to another guy who was selling um, traditional African art at a at a street market and. He said he likes the Chinese. He prefers the Chinese to the South Africans and the Germans and the Americans because the Chinese aren't superior. You know, they, they, they live in the townships. They ride the combi taxis. They, you know, they work hard side by side with the Africans. And there was an appreciation of that lack of superiority. Um, in Johannesburg and in, in South Africa in general, I think because of um, former apartheid laws and the continued segregation that is very much based on race, but increasingly um, class as well, um, there's a lot less mixing. I think in Johannesburg in particular, it has um, a lot more to do with crime than um, as well as the kind of historical um, boundaries, uh, if you will. Um, and, and intermixing, intermarriage is a lot less prevalent. It's, it's something that, you know, doesn't happen as frequently as you see it in other places. Um, certainly, I, I don't know if, if, if your listeners or you guys know, my husband is African-American. And when we used to walk around Johannesburg in the early days when we first arrived um, in 95, 96, we would make every single head in a restaurant turn to gawk at us, and and we just waited to see what they were going to do, if they wanted to you know, boot us out. Um, and as soon as we opened our mouths and it became clear that we were Americans, there was this almost, you could see the white South Africans and this kind of sigh of relief, like, oh, they're not from here. You know, they're American. Okay. Um, you know, there are all kinds of stories like that. So um, I guess the point is that the levels of integration and mixing and intermarriage will largely depend on the context and on the country and whether or not this is something that's done generally and in the case of South Africa it's still relatively new I mean up until 90 you know the early 90s it was illegal to intermarry you know um, and in other places you just you see it a lot more you see a lot of children who run around and look like my daughter <laughs> Well, listen, I'll tell you, as a white guy married to an African-American living in Vietnam, I face a very similar situation as to what you guys faced in South Africa. So you're, you're not alone, you know. Kobus, last question to you today. 
Um, you know, it's, it's, this is a, almost a kind of ridiculously large question, but I, um, you know, I was wondering in, in your in your conversations with Chinese migrants um, in Africa and Southern Africa, particularly, you know, kind of like what is their quality of life? Because the you know, kind of the, the research that I've read frequently paints a very bleak picture of people, um, you know, kind of sleeping in their shops, trying to pay off their debt, working themselves to death, you know, kind of having this these kind of quite boring. Uh, humdrum but incredibly hard-working lives like how much fun do Chinese migrants in Africa actually have I you know what Hobus I think that also depends on where they are and how many um, there are if there is a, any sort of community as such I know when we did the research in the Free State in South Africa which is the province that sits just south of Johannesburg and it's largely agricultural and rural we stayed off of the main roads and went on the secondary and tertiary roads on purpose because I had heard rumor that there was a Chinese shop in every single small town. Um, and in fact, our research confirmed that rumor that there were, in fact, uh, you know, at, at least one or two Chinese shops in all of these small little towns. And for them, the quality of life was actually quite low. They were lonely. They were bored. Um, the, the next Chinese person, apart from the people in the immediate, you know, house or building or shop, were, you know, 30, 40, 50 kilometers away. Um, they had to drive up to Johannesburg every two weeks, every every month in order to do their shopping, get any news. Um, and apart from that, they relied on internet connections and, you know, um, Chinese um, videos and the, you know I imagine these days now WeChat and other social media outlets to stay in touch but their day-to-day -day lives were as you mentioned quite bleak yeah. um, in Johannesburg where you have a larger community of Chinese there are Chinese restaurants there um, you know there are shops there um, uh, there's much more of a social life um, I have a, a dear friend who has been in South Africa um, for nearly 15 years now, and she and her husband were amongst the first mainland Chinese to arrive. They have history there. They have friends. They, um, they, they organize parties. They have a volleyball club. You know, their social life is much richer, um, and they're also much more engaged with local community activities as well. So they'll, um, you know, volunteer, they give donations, you know, they, they participate in the civil life of Johannesburg. So, you know, again, it depends on one's own social capital, I think, you know, what you come with in terms of your own experiences, your language um, facility, um, you know, and, and even, resources you know if you're educated if you've lived overseas before you're going to be in a much better position than you know the the poor um, primary school educated um, guy from Fuching who had to take out a loan to go and then um, apprentice in a shop in some dorpy in the free state you know, it's a very different existence. Well, it sounds like the theme of our discussion is that it's impossible to generalize. I mean, first of all, you've got a continent of 50-some-odd countries, 54 countries. You know, they've always talked about China as a, as a 
you know, a civilization posing as a country. Um, and it's equal in size. And I guess this is too diverse of a population to generalize because there's so much variety across the board. Uh, Yun Jun Park is the co-founder and coordinator of the Chinese in Africa, Africans in China Research Network. Uh, I recommend, and I cannot recommend highly enough, to head over to their website, uh, china-africa.ssrc.org. Uh, once again, china-africa.ssrc.org. And once you're over there, uh, you can find a, a sign-up button for the Chinese in Africa, Africans in Chinese research group. Again, uh, this is only for serious folks, though. So this is a hardcore group of people who are interested in China-Africa relations. Uh, but uh, if you are in that group of academics, diplomats, bankers, uh, students, whatnot, uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, Yun, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really just a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. It was a pleasure. Thanks, guys. And Kobus, if people want to follow what you're doing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? I'm on our Facebook page daily, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, I really, really recommend that you head over to the China File website. Uh, that's the Asia Society's excellent website on China. We're publishing our podcast every week there. So if you want great Chinese news and analysis and context of some of the best sinologists in the world, uh, and also you want to listen to our podcast, well, then you can do both in one, t- in one stop. Uh, if, of course, you want to take us on the go, we've got mobile apps for Android and for uh, Apple, and of course on iTunes. Just look for us on China Africa Project. And Cobus, by the way, we've got 17 comments now on, uh, on, our, on our iTunes page, and, and I'm grateful, and I have not paid for any of these comments, by the way. <laughs> but they're all, they're all five stars, and so again, I just, wow. you know, I bow down with humility to our to our very gracious audience, but we would love for you to kind of leave us a comment. It doesn't necessarily have to be five stars, admittedly, uh, <laughs> but it would really uh, be kind because the more comments that we have, the higher we get pushed up in the ranking of uh, of iTunes. So it really helps us make uh, make the show more discoverable for new listeners and for other people out there. So we'll be back again soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>